Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Tiffany Meyer in for Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. It's Memorial Day and President Biden is paying tribute to fallen soldiers. We'll show you the highlights. A deal is struck. President Biden and Speaker McCarthy's debt ceiling bill gets nods of approval from most congressional leaders amid backlash on both sides. What's in the bill? We bring analysis. In an expected vote on Saturday, Texas House lawmakers impeached Attorney General Ken Paxton. A conservative political strategist calls it election interference. China is racing to the moon with a new goal by the end of the decade. A geopolitical analyst tells us it's critical for the U.S. to match China's ambition. Find out why. And Senator Lindsey Graham on a wanted list in Russia. This comes after remarks he made about the ongoing war with Ukraine. President Biden today on Memorial Day paying tribute to our fallen soldiers. Here's what he said at the National Cemetery in Arlington. Today, we must ask ourselves, what can we do, what must we do to pull the vision for which they lived and which they died? Today, it's on all of us, all of us, to ensure that sacrifice was not in vain, to keep working toward a more perfect union. The president marked the sacrifice of generations of U.S. troops who died fighting for our country. He was joined by First Lady Jill Biden, Vice President Kamala Harris, and others. Tuesday will mark eight years since Biden's oldest son, Beau Biden, died of cancer. Both served in the Army for various years. And next, we'll hear from retired Navy SEAL Mike Sorelli. He's also the CEO of Talent War Group and author of The Everyday Warrior. And he spoke with NTD Stephania Cox for Memorial Day. Mike, amid rising global tensions, it seems like it's never been a better time to recognize the men and women who, so, who serve in our military. What kind of effect do Memorial Day celebrations have on those who currently serve? Well, I'll say amid uh, rising global tensions, let's hope we don't have to deploy the military option. Uh, I've been to war. I don't want this next generation to go to war. But, uh, you know, Memorial Day, and, and I hate to sound cliche, for us, every day is Memorial Day. For those that served and, and lost, uh, you know, brothers or sisters in arms over there, every day is, is Memorial Day. And that's not meant to be somber. It's meant to be positive. You know, we say never forget, forever honor. So when you have the ability to take the time on Memorial Day to recognize that somebody was so selfless to give their lives for people they didn't know, this ideal we call America. And on that point, what kind of effect do you think Memorial Day has on the nation or could have? You, you know, I hate to say, you know, on Veterans Day, uh, I actually go to Canada because that's their Remembrance Day. And I've never seen a finer display of a country where everyone shuts down and honors their uh, their fallen. And America, for, for whatever reason, uh, has lost that same sentiment, is you don't see people sort of shut down business, take the time, and, and really honor our fallen uh, soldiers who again, gave their lives. I mean, to say that, to give your life for your countrymen, there is no nobler cause in life and for people to truly grasp that you know what you you become you become more unified you see a common shared purpose uh and you feel more selfless you want to be more selfless in giving towards uh your, your fellow countrymen 
and you want to find a way to contribute to, again, this, this great ideal that our, our founding fathers uh, created uh, called the United States of America. Absolutely. Your favorite Memorial Day memory, if you had to choose. You know, I spent a lot of Memorial Days uh, overseas in Iraq, Afghanistan, or other regions of the world uh, that are less than uh, than desirable. And uh, it took on a different meaning because some days we were operating on those days. We were going outside the wire against enemy combatants. And we'd already lost uh, brothers and sisters in arms up to that point. And, you know, you just felt like you were in the right place, surrounded by the right people. And um, I remember one particularly in Afghanistan, and um, we'd lost somebody, uh, Adam Brown, in, in April, and it just took a whole new meaning that, you know, that's very close to Memorial Day, it took on a whole new meaning uh, completing the rest of that deployment uh, in the Konar region uh, of Afghanistan, which was a horrible, horrible region. Um, but that's the one that comes to mind in 2010, Afghanistan. And there are folds of honor scholarship programs. I'd love to hear more about that, if you could tell me. So Andy Stumpf, Nick Cush, Andy Stumpf is a retired Navy SEAL. Nick Cush is a retired Navy EOD operator. Uh, we formed something called Legacy Expeditions, where we do legacies in honor of our fallen. Again, we like to say not because they're easy, but because they're hard. So uh, we do these expeditions that usually set world records. And while we're doing them, we said, hey, why don't we raise some money for some good organization like Folds of Honor? Folds of Honor provides educational scholarships to spouses and children of either deceased or highly disabled veterans and now first responders who are equally as deserving as our, uh, our veterans. So to give an education to, to a kid that lost their father or mother in the war, there's no finer cause, in, in my opinion, and Folds of Honor actually puts their money where their mouth is, 91 cents of every dollar 91 cents goes to the actual programs, goes to actual scholarships, and not many uh, foundations can, uh, can say that. Wow, that is remarkable. Yep. Now, the military is going through recruiting shortfalls still. How do you think that we can, as a nation, support our service members, past, present, and future? You know, I've heard this thing about veterans saying they don't like to be thanked for their service. I would still say to, to good Americans, go off and thank somebody for their service. When somebody says that to me, I say, hey, thank you. Just the, the notion that you would do that, uh, I'm extremely appreciative. And, and quite frankly, I don't call it service when you're so passionate about something. But what I think the military is getting wrong is they do these, these commercials with you know a kid who's playing a video game and then that video game turns into a real life Marine when they should be focusing on what I call outcome-based outcome recruiting and showing the alumni, showing men like Andy Stump and Nick Cush and saying, hey, didn't have all that much direction after high school, enlisted in the SEALs, enlisted in the Navy. And now they're business owners. They, they've got their, their college educations. They're doing extremely well for themselves. They're setting world records. Like, if you want to become like those men, join the military, because it's the, the US's greatest leadership incubator. And Steph, let me say this. I didn't come from the military lineage. I met a force recon Marine at the age of 18, and I thought this guy walked on water. And he was so impressive and represented his organization so well, I said, hey, whatever organization you're a part of, I want in. And I became a recon marine and eventually a SEAL, all because of that one man. So that's the power our veterans hold. Make sure you represent yourselves well out in public because you are the greatest recruiting tool that the military will have and always will have. Inspiring. Thank you so much. Mike Sorelli, great to hear from you. Thanks, Steph. And happy Memorial Day. Happy Memorial Day.
Over in Texas, Republican Attorney General Ken Paxton was suspended from office after lawmakers voted to impeach him. NTD's Arlene Richards spoke with a conservative political strategist for her take on the vote and potential impacts on the 2024 presidential election. In an emergency vote on Saturday in Texas, Republican Speaker Dade Phelan and Republicans joined with Democrats to temporarily remove Attorney General Ken Paxton from office. He is accused of bribery, obstruction of justice, and abuse of trust. Texas lawmakers voted 121 to 23 to adopt the 20 articles of impeachment presented by a House committee. Conservative political strategist Raven Harrison called the vote justice in reverse. Here's her take on it. This should have been under the presumption of innocent until proven guilty. This should have been provided before. So this is a few uh, members, including Dade Phelan, who got together in secretive in the middle of the night and rushed this thing through, called all the legislators back to vote on this on a Saturday, on a holiday weekend. These procedures should have been brought forth before when you're asking legislators to vote on something as critical and as important as this. Normally, it's you have the trial and the result comes from that. We don't normally have the result, and then we have a trial to try to justify it. State Democrat Representative James Tallarico voted for the impeachment. He said this about Paxton. And I hope folks recognize that corrupt public officials like Ken Paxton are the rot at the core of our broken political system. And holding them accountable is our job as elected officials. Article 15, Section 5 of the Texas State Constitution requires the suspension of a government official during the pending impeachment charges. Paxton has alleged that Phelan and other lawmakers are interfering with his work as attorney general, including a case against the Biden administration to stop illegal immigration. In a statement he posted on Twitter, Paxton called the impeachment a sham and not meant to be fair and just. He said Phelan and the appointed committee ignored evidence, testimony and irrefutable facts. Harrison said the timing of the impeachment is suspicious. We know he's been on the cusp of some groundbreaking legislation in terms of holding um, the Biden administration accountable. We have a wide open border. We have uh, a problem with fentanyl and crime spiking. We have a lot of problems in Texas that we need. She also believes the impeachment is election interference. They are desperate to keep President Trump from running again. They have demonstrated that and they would be it would be important to them to remove all of the key allies because Texas is a huge battleground state. Somebody who's going to win the presidency must win Texas. Governor Greg Abbott may appoint an interim attorney general during the impeachment trial, which goes to the Senate. But so far, Abbott has remained silent. And Harrison says the silence is deafening. Arlene Richards, NTD News. All major congressional leaders have signaled their support for President Biden's and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy's debt ceiling deal, which they agreed on over the weekend. The agreement prevents the worst possible crisis a default for the first time in our nation's history. Economist Daniel Lacaye says the deal is relatively positive because it staves off the uncertainty of the debt ceiling crisis and includes record public spending cuts and no new taxes. It avoids uh, a situation like the one that we saw in 2011, where markets corrected very aggressively. But he says it doesn't solve the fundamental problem of U.S. public finances. Such a large deficit is a problem for the United States economy. It, it means higher taxes, higher inflation, or uh, lower growth in the future. So what's in the budget, and where could cuts be made? 
The deal meets a crucial GOP demand to cap spending on non-defense items, though it's far from Republicans' original aspirations to slash and limit spending. It bolsters work requirements for SNAP and TANF government assistance programs with exemptions for families with children, the homeless, and veterans. It cuts a portion of funding from the IRS's recent major injection that came through the Inflation Reduction Act, but leaves Biden's student loan debt program untouched and rescinds about $30 billion in unspent COVID relief money with exceptions from veterans' medical care, housing assistance, the Indian Health Service, and about $5 billion towards developing the next generation of COVID vaccines and treatments. Economist Vance Ginn says there are positives in the non-defense discretionary spending, as well as some other aspects, such as increasing work requirements. Ultimately, work is what brings about purpose and dignity and self-sufficiency over time to not be reliant on safety net programs, and we need more of that. But he says these changes are not enough, considering that the expected deficits over the next decade average about $2 trillion a year. If it's for the American people, we've got to make sure that we are not leaving our kids and grandkids with more debt to pay over time. And ultimately, it's hurting us today because of higher inflation that's driven by the increases in debt that the Federal Reserve can then print and put more money into the economy. Um, and then you're going to have higher interest rates, which we're already seeing across the economy. And Lakaye says we don't need to search for large items to cut drastically in order to rein in the budget. Tightening administrative and bureaucratic spending would go a long way. The U.S. budget has hundreds of millions of dollars that are wasted in small items everywhere. While this budget deal has faced both opposition and support from both sides, one thing is clear. The United States needs to be uh, a strong uh, a strong nation in terms of credit conference in order to remain as a world reserve currency and continue to have the U.S. Treasury as the lowest risk asset. House Republicans laid plans Monday to advance this deal with Biden starting Tuesday, aiming to pass it through Congress before Treasury's deadline early next week. A new space race is growing between the U.S. and China. Why does it matter when we've already sent someone to the moon? To find out, we speak with geopolitical analyst Brandon Weikert. He's also the senior editor at 1945.com. Brandon Weikert, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. It's nice to be here. Brandon, I want to start with these plans from China. They want to send astronauts to the moon by 2030. What does this mean in terms of the growing U.S.-China space race? Well, it means that America had better hustle up and start getting on its game because we've been talking a lot about getting back to the moon and going to Mars and beyond. But so far, all we've done is talk, and it seems like China's actually throwing all of their resources available into accomplishing these these goals. And if they can accomplish those goals, they've just taken the strategic high ground because space isn't just a cool place to do science experiments. It's also a real strategic and economic zone of competition that China very much wants to take control over. And when is the U.S. expected to send astronauts back to the moon? 
Well, if you remember under the Trump administration, it was supposed to actually be around now. Had he won re-election, it is probable that we would have been and looking at it in the next year or two. NASA says they're planning to do it as early as next year, although I have serious doubts about that. It probably won't be closer until the 2030s. Um, and as you know, China is saying they're going to try to make it before the 2030s. Um, so chi like I said, NASA and the private space sector here in America had better up their game because right now um, we've got all the money, but we're not allocating it properly. And on that note, Brandon, China has plans to launch a spaceship tomorrow. It'll be the fifth manned mission to the Chinese space station since 2021. What is at stake in terms of the lunar resources? We have NASA's administrator warning the U.S. about this. What's at stake? Well, uh, first of all, there are plans to get permanent manned settlements on the moon. And they are looking right now at the southern pole of the moon because it's believed that has a lot of unmelted ice. Uh, and so whoever can get to that real estate first and mine that ice, they've just created um, water that can be used to sustain human life. And also you can use that water eventually to build, to, to use uh, as rocket fuel so you can create indigenous return flights. And what you're doing when you, when you engage in that sort of resource harvesting is you're reducing the amount of payload that a crew has to take with them to the moon. If they can just get the resources that are already there, they're cutting that payload in half. And then also that means they're cutting the cost of the mission in half. And as I say in my book, Winning Space, being cheap and easy in space is actually a good thing. Uh, and so that's, that's what we're looking at. But the problem is those resources are in certain parts of the moon, we think. And whoever gets there first can probably dominate and capitalize on those resources and cut out the other party that they don't want to share those resources with. Then there's also an entire possible uh, economy of natural resources that can be harvested, things like titanium found on the moon. Also, more importantly, helium-3, H3, which is an isotope that China in particular believes can be uh, harvested from the regolith, the dust in the moon, mined and used for um, an ignition source of a stable nuclear fusion drive which could be used to power a city like Shanghai cleanly without needing any kind of replacement for up to 10 to 20 years. And so there's a real economic long-term incentive for getting to the moon and dominating the resources there and denying the Americans access to those resources. And given these latest developments out of China, what should the U.S. be doing now? Well, as I've said, what we need to be doing, we're, we're spending money like, uh, you know, with all due respect to the Navy, we're spending money like drunken sailors. So why don't we allocate a trillion dollars, for instance, specifically for a robust, uh, massive space uh, moonshot? that we will use that money to build the capabilities and uh, marshal the resources and the personnel needed to not just get back to the moon in the next couple of years and to hold the moon, but to go beyond that, to take Mars. China very much wants to take Mars, to take critical strategic points in the asteroid belt. Asteroid belt has asteroids that have a lot of mineable natural resources, uh, mainly rare earth minerals, which are required to build um, modern technology 
technology. And the Chinese have designs on dominating all of these regions to say nothing of the orbits close to the Earth, which could be used to put weapons emplacements in and threaten the Earth below, could be used to deny Americans and their allies access to those critical satellites. You and I have spoken about this before. Uh, and if they can deny Americans access to those satellites in a time of war, they could render our forces on Earth deaf, dumb, and blind and give clear advantage to China. So really we're talking about not just the military and political dominance uh, of future dominance of the Earth and the development of the Earth and the human species, but we're talking about also economic opportunity. At least a trillion dollars is waiting to be had for the first company that can figure or country that can figure out space mining. It's considerably more, but in the immediate term, the first company or country that can start space mining effectively, that's where the world's first trillionaire with a T will come. So China wants to be at the, at the cutting edge of all of this because they recognize that not only it will elevate their country, but it will also allow for them to become truly the dominant world superpower by the year 2049, which is the 100th year anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China. We've got to stop that. And that's why I'm saying marshal a lot of resources. We've fallen behind too far, and we're going to have to now spend twice as much as we should have spent to catch up to China and leapfrog them. Definitely a lot on the line here. Brandon Weikert, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Tiffany. And in domestic news, an apartment building collapsed in Davenport, Iowa over the weekend. Authorities say eight people were rescued overnight. Luckily, no fatalities have been reported. Video shows the moments right after the collapse, with part of the building turned to rubble. Authorities didn't say how many people might still be trapped. Officials in Iowa are now making plans to demolish the six-story apartment building. Davenport's mayor said the focus is currently on rescue. He said construction was underway on the exterior of the building at the time. The cause of the collapse isn't yet officially known, but gas leaks and water seepage are possible factors. Coming up, one of the nation's largest Memorial Day parades. See marching bands and veteran units from across the country come together to honor those who sacrificed for freedom. And Americans are worried about artificial intelligence potential threat to mankind. According to a new poll, some experts are sounding the alarm. Find out more after the break. Welcome back. Veteran groups and marching bands gathered in Washington, D.C. for one of the nation's largest Memorial Day parades today. NDD's Iris Tao has more on what Memorial Day means to them. Despite the light rain, the National Memorial Day Parade takes place with a crowded audience on Constitution Avenue right behind me in the nation's capital. Spectators. Marching bands. More marching bands, as well as veteran units from all over the country, gather here to remind us of the true meaning of this holiday, to honor the service and sacrifice of generations of American heroes. Memorial Day is very, very special to me. A lot of people gave their lives, were had the courage uh, uh, to step up.
and we talked to some of those heroes, including Charlie Duke, an Apollo 16 astronaut who's one of the grand marshals of this parade. He's also one of the four American moonwalkers who are still alive. We need uh, uh, men and women with courage to step forward and accept the risk and uh, move our country in a, uh, a direction that would be a godly direction. And I also asked some other veterans. And what's your message to the younger generation? Why should we keep honoring our fallen? Uh, my, young, my message to the younger generation is join the military. Serve your country. Because right now our recruiting is at the lowest it's ever been in the history of our military. So it's important that we have men and women continue to serve in our military because if we do not have a strong military, we will become a less, a weakened country. The weaker we become, the stronger the enemy becomes. It, it symbolizes the United States. You are still needed, you're still appreciated, and we, I would serve again to help you. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. Turning now to tech news, the majority of Americans are worried that artificial intelligence could pose an existential threat to civilization. This comes as AI is rapidly developing. Here's more. A majority of Americans say the rapid advancement of artificial intelligence technology could put the future of humanity at risk. That's according to a poll by market research firm Ipsos and Reuters. The poll also shows more than two-thirds of Americans are concerned about the negative effects of AI. Here's Ipsos pollster Clifford Young. Overall, Americans are concerned, a vast majority of Americans are concerned about AI. Uh, we asked specifically about the existential uh, nature of humanity. Will AI impact that? And 61% of Americans agree that it will. AI chatbot ChatGPT has become the fastest growing app of all time. It kicked off an AI arms race. AI's rapidly developing capabilities have some researchers sounding the alarm. Widely known as one of the godfathers of AI, computer scientist Jeffrey Hinton speaks out on its risks. Um, I suddenly realized that maybe the computer models we have now are actually better than the brain. And if that's the case, then maybe quite soon they'll be better than us. So that the idea of superintelligence, instead of being something in the distant future, might come much sooner than I expected. Hinton is now among a growing number of tech leaders publicly warning about the risk that AI machines will achieve greater intelligence than humans and potentially pose a threat to humanity. He compares the danger to the threat posed by the advent of nuclear weapons in the mid-20th century. OpenAI CEO Samuel Altman has previously indicated he supports government regulation of AI or guardrails to protect the public from potential harm. The Ipsos and Reuters poll also shows that the American public favors government oversight of AI. Still to come, a U.S. senator on a wanted list in Russia. This comes after remarks he made about the ongoing war in Ukraine. Are Russia and Belarus recruiting other countries? The president of Belarus is offering a special kind of weapon to any nation that joins their alliance. And Turkish incumbent president declares victory for yet another term. What does it mean for Turkey and the world? Find out in just a moment here on NTD News.
Welcome back. Senator Lindsey Graham is now on a wanted list in Russia. This comes after an edited video was released of Graham meeting with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky in Kiev on Friday. Let's take a listen. And the Russians are dying. The best money we've ever spent. Ukraine released a full video of the meeting showing these two remarks Graham made to the Ukrainian president were not linked. Russia's investigative committee said on Sunday that it was opening a criminal probe into Graham's comments. It did not specify what crime he was suspected of. Graham disputed Russian criticism of his support for Ukraine on Sunday. He said he had simply praised the spirit of Ukrainians in resisting the Russian invasion. And Russia and Belarus appear to be recruiting other countries to join their alliance. This comes as Russia just launched its 16th attack on the capital of Ukraine this month. Entities Jason Perry has the latest. On Monday, children in Ukraine could be heard screaming as they ran for cover with sounds of explosions in the background. Other residents took cover in a metro station in Kyiv, the capital of Ukraine, until the bombing stopped. I heard two or three explosions, went to the bathroom, and then I heard five or seven more explosions. This is certainly not enough to break us. Tonight I still plan to go to yoga and recharge. Everything is fine. Russia launched its 16th airstrike on Kyiv this month after dozens of attacks overnight. And this time, Ukraine claims to have intercepted all of the missiles Monday and 37 of the 40 cruise missiles launched by Russia overnight. This video shows the debris from one of the intercepted missiles falling onto a busy road in Kyiv. Ukrainian police picked up the remains afterwards. But for the missiles that were not intercepted, Russia's defense ministry spokesman said this. All assigned objects were destroyed. As a result of the strike, battle headquarters and radar stations were hit, as well as aviation equipment and ammo and weapons depots. Ukraine acknowledged being hit, saying that five aircraft were taken out of service and storage facilities for fuel and ammunition were hit. Meanwhile, Russia and Belarus appear to be recruiting other countries. The president of Belarus is now offering nuclear weapons to any nation willing to join the alliance, saying, It's very simple. Join the union state of Belarus and Russia. That's all. There will be nuclear weapons for everyone. His comments came just days after he confirmed the transfer of nuclear weapons from Russia to Belarus had begun. U.S. Department of State spokesperson Matthew Miller said despite the report of the transfer, the U.S. sees no reason to adjust its nuclear posture. And he added that there are no indications that Russia is preparing to use a nuclear weapon. Jason Perry, NTD News. Turning to Turkey, the results are in from the election over the weekend. The nation's incumbent president is now entering his third decade as leader. What does it mean for Turkey and, on a broader scale, the world? Antides Sam Wong has more. I thank each member of our nation for entrusting me with the responsibility to govern this country once again for the upcoming five years. After a tight runoff, Tayyip Erdogan has secured another five years in power. The incumbent Turkish president won approximately 52 percent of the vote, beating his rival Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu by a narrow margin of 4 percent. Following the loss, Kılıçdaroğlu, who is widely seen as more pro-Western, called it the most unfair election in years but did not dispute the outcome. In the face of an ever more polarized demographic, the earthquake aftermath and a staggering inflation, 
What lies ahead for Erdogan and Turkey remains unclear. The unorthodox policy set that the central bank is implementing, that is low interest rates against really high inflation, has resulted in runaway inflation, taking a toll on the lira, and also contributed to a ballooning external financing gap. That looks like it's going to lead the economy towards a policy pivot later on in the year. But during his term, Erdogan has increased public sector wages, boosted pensions, and allowed millions of people to retire early. He has also introduced electricity and gas subsidies and wiped out some household debt. In the international world, the foreign ministers of Sweden and Turkey will meet soon to discuss Sweden's delayed bid to join NATO. Sweden applied for NATO membership following Russia's invasion of Ukraine in 2022. But the bid has been held up by objections from Turkey and Hungary. Sweden has long been critical of Turkey's human rights record. Now, Erdogan's victory won't make it any easier for Sweden to join. And amid the Russia-Ukraine conflict, Turkey was quick to condemn Putin's invasion. But unlike other NATO members, Turkey has refused to go along with Western sanctions, and its trade ties with Russia remain in place. Officials from Erdogan's political party stated that Turkey's no-sanctions policy will continue. Sam Wong, NTD News, New York. After the election, President Biden congratulated Erdogan for his win. He's also trying to tip the scales in Sweden's favor for that NATO bid. He said the U.S. might sell F-16 aircraft to Turkey if the nation drops its opposition. And the WHO is warning a new pandemic is about to emerge as member states debate a new legally binding global treaty. Hundreds of demonstrators over the weekend in Switzerland protested the pact, calling it a threat to the sovereignty of nations. Entities France correspondent David Vives has the story. The COVID pandemic is over, but the WHO says it's time to prepare for the next one. Elf ministers of member states gathering in Geneva, Switzerland, are currently debating 300 new amendments for a new global health treaty. The pandemic accord would set the guidelines on how to tackle a new worldwide health emergency. The legally binding agreement aims to address what the UN agency calls the catastrophic failure of the international community to fight COVID-19 fairly around the world. Demonstrators showed up over the weekend near the venue to protest the WHO's plans. It's a power grab by the WHO, a form of control over member states. These new international health regulations containing 300 amendments and a second agreement, a new pandemic treaty will overlap a great deal with existing international health regulations. Above all, it is a serious attack on the sovereignty of states and the individual freedom of individuals. This is extremely serious. Private companies such as McKinsey, who played a key role in the COVID vaccine rollout in France, also attend the meeting. A close in an earlier draft obliging pharmaceutical companies to make details of their deals with governments public appears to have been dropped. We also have reason to be concerned about the fact that there are a lot of private sponsors involved with the WHO. As it turns out, these are people and companies who are involved in everything to do with drugs and vaccines. As a result, the WHO is going to be completely taken over by its funders and will no longer be able to defend the health of the population properly. WHO's Director General Tedros Ghebreyesus said reforms shouldn't be delayed to prepare for the next pandemic. The WHO is going to dictate certain measures and the member states are going to have to pay for these measures. So here again, in terms of the economy, 
a country no longer has any control over its own affairs. And in terms of a country's culture and values, it's catastrophic. It's going to be the same measures everywhere. The pandemic treaty is expected to come in force by the next year. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. Up next in the NBA, Game 7 in Boston. The Celtics are one win away from doing the improbable, while Miami would like to avoid being on the wrong side of history. And California's Tulare Lake is filling up from the winter storms. The reservoir had nearly dried up. Now it's almost the size of the state's largest lake. We'll be back with more shortly. Welcome back. Turning over to sports news, we have NTD's Dave Martin joining us. Dave, the Celtics won a thriller Saturday in Miami to force tonight's Game 7. First, did you see this series going seven games after Miami won the first three? Did anyone? <laughs> I don't think anyone saw it. You know, if Boston, you know, somehow wins tonight, I mean, they could be the first, you know, favored team in history to be able to say no one thought we could do it. And that's just because history is not on their side, and I mean at all. Of the 150 teams that have fallen behind 3-0, not a single one of them has come back. They're just the fourth to uh, even force a Game 7. But you know, this is the same team that had the second best record in the regular season, and it's not like they're missing you know, any of their big stars like Tatum or Jalen Brown. They really just played poor down the stretch in Game 1 and 2 game. <clears throat> games one and two, but now the last three games, they've played a whole lot better and they're in a very favorable situation. And Dave, what about the Heat then? Why haven't they been in good shape this regular season? Well, you know, everybody is wondering that too. You know, they snuck in as the eight seed. All of a sudden, they beat the top seed Milwaukee. They beat New York. And now, and I mean, they had, they had Boston on the ropes just a week ago. But, you know, after they lost game four, if you looked at the rest of the series, of the three, ga of the three games that were remaining, three were in Boston. They really needed to win that game six Saturday. They were so close to doing it despite themselves. I mean, they missed so many shots in the lane. Now they're in a very tough situation. I mean, no team wants to go to a game seven on the road, and that's mainly because of the crowd. I mean, the, the crowd loves these games. It, it's so exciting. And to face that, it, it's like playing five on six almost. And Dave, do you think the way game six played out in you know, such heartbreaking fashion for Miami, will that emotionally doom them in game seven? Who do you see winning tonight? <laughs> you know, initially when I, when I saw them, you know, when I saw that game like that, you know, they had the lead with just three seconds left after playing so poorly down the stretch or actually they, they played poorly until about four minutes left and then it looked like they were gonna steal that game only to have it, only to lose it in such heartbreaking fashion. I mean, the tip in with 0.1 seconds left, that's really tough to rebound from. Initially, I thought, well, Boston's gonna just run them off the court. But now I really think, you know, Jimmy Butler and Miami are seething. They, they played so poorly. I think they have a lot to prove. I think they're going to come out strong. I think Boston, though, is ultimately going to weather that storm. 
Uh, and I think, you know, in the end, the crowd is really going to uh, root them on, and I think they're going to win tonight. Celtics in seven. And Dave, looking ahead to the finals, do you think either team matches up well with Denver? <laughs> well, the whole thing about that is who, who matches up well with Nikola Jokic? I mean, no team, unfortunately, matches up very well with them. The Celtics, you know, they have Robert Williams, who's a good shot blocker. But if you take him out to guard Jokic on the perimeter, that's really tough because then your shot blocker isn't in the lane. And then, you know, the, the whole lane is going to be open and that's just going to play into Denver's game plan. Miami is a very interesting matchup, though, because Bam Adebayo, their center, is so athletic. I mean, the guy is about 6'10", 250, and he is fast. He jumps high. His only thing is... He's 30 pounds lighter than Jokic. I mean, Denver can just post up Jokic in the lane, and I would think he's going to get Bam Adebayo in foul trouble. But it would be, an, it would be a very interesting series, especially to see Jimmy Butler back in the finals. The guy is such a PTP or primetime player. So I, I, th I think both matchups would be very interesting, but I think it's going to be Boston. Dave, thank you for that. We'll be checking back in with you tomorrow. Thank you very much, Tiff. Over the weekend, several groups protested at a California school over male participation in female sports in the lead-up to a championship game. The two transgender high school athletes who had planned to compete in the women's race pulled out at the last minute. At the Veterans Memorial Stadium in Clovis, California on Saturday, advocates of women's rights protested against the California Interscholastic Federation, or CIF, for allowing guys to participate in girls' sports leading up to the 2023 CIF Track and Field Championship. We came here to take a stand about the importance of protecting sex-based sports and sex-based women's-based rights, and we were able to get in. Last weekend, two transgender athletes who qualified to compete in a 1,600-meter dash withdrew from the preliminary competition on Friday at the last minute after criticism. So the athletes competing in finals on Saturday were all female. I don't wish to speculate as to why those two boys ended up not competing in the race, but I want to say I hope it's because those boys and their parents realized that what they were doing was incredibly unfair to the women and girls who rightfully earned their spot at the state championship. There's a disadvantage to me, unfair advantage, but it's not... You know, it's not for me to say, it's for them to kind of come out, come decide on what that is, because I'm, as being a male, you know, I know I have an advantage on, on some, you know, on the female. In a statement, CIF wrote, the CIF is disappointed for two of our student athletes and their families because due to the action of others, they found it necessary to withdraw from the state track and field championships out of concern for the students' well-being. In a Twitter post, Senator Scott Weiner said, quote, a vicious right-wing harassment campaign targeted them. In response, one of the groups said, quote, over 90% of the women in this photo are registered Democrats and over 35% are lesbians. We are not a right-wing group. He has done an outrageous amount of work to eradicate the sex-based rights of women and girls throughout the state of California, including in sports, including in prisons, and including bills that are deliberately designed to harm children. And what Dansky said many parents supported their cause. The athletes who competed in the finals say it was a good race and they enjoyed it. Competition is very competitive. 
it's hard to do, but it pushes us even more. And it, it helps us lower our time and it gives us a goal rather than running in a heat where there's not much competition. So it was a really good opportunity to learn with all the fast girls and to just keep up with them. Eileen Eng, NTD News, California. Staying in California, a once dry lake is full again, thanks to massive amounts of water from winter storms. In fact, the lake has grown so much, it's almost the size of the state's largest lake, Lake Tahoe. NTD heard from locals who were amazed, but also concerned. Tulare Lake was once the largest body of fresh water west of the Mississippi. However, in the 1900s, it dried up after its tributaries were diverted for irrigating crops and municipal water use. But now, the lake is back from the dead thanks to snowmelt from this year's winter storms. I am amazed. I didn't think it went out this far and I'm just curious like how deep it is and yeah, I'm, it's pretty cool. Tulare Lake is sometimes referred to as a ghost lake or phantom lake due to its cycles of drying up completely, then coming back as a small lake following some wet years. We heard that this was all farmland and it was dried up since the 90s and with all the rain we've had that it filled up and we expected like a little pond. We couldn't believe when we pulled up and saw, like look at the barn way over there. We couldn't believe how much water was here. Before the dam, this was all lake. I mean, there's nothing to control the water during the springtime and this always full of water, always had water. So just how big has Tulare Lake grown? It's now roughly 180 square miles, nearly the same size as Lake Tahoe, California's largest lake. While the water has been a welcomed relief, the unexpected rise of the Ghost Lake is raising flooding concerns among some. I've been keeping up with it and I know that it's getting higher and higher and fuller and fuller, so I'm just concerned about, you know, what, what could happen later on. And the snow is still melting and it's just going to get hotter, so. There's too much water this year because of all the snow. We had so much snow. And now it's getting so hot, it's all melting and that's why we're getting this. And it'll get worse before it goes away. It'll, it'll take years for it to go away, don't you think? Because this is clay. It's got a lot of clay and the clay turns to like cement and it doesn't absorb into the ground. The last time Tulare Lake disappeared was in the 1980s. It took two years, beginning in 1983, to completely dry out. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. Today we join our fellow citizens as we remember and honor those who courageously gave their lives, serving our country and defending our freedom. From all of us here at NTD, we wish you a very happy Memorial Day. Thank you.